and welcome to Fandom Made Me, a podcast from Fandom Forward featuring interviews with activists, leaders, and writers about the pop culture that made them who they are. I'm your host, Sabrina Carton, and today we're talking with feminist filmmaker Teresa Schechter about why she's a fan of Free to Be, You and Me, the classic 1970s children's album that encouraged gender equality and challenged many gender stereotypes of that era. Teresa Schechter is an award-winning filmmaker who makes documentaries that challenge all that is sacred about womanhood. Her films and her work have been featured at colleges, conferences, nonprofits, and outlets around the world, including Harvard Sex Week, the Woodstock Film Festival, NPR, The Atlantic, and, well, the list goes on. Teresa is the director of films including I Was a Teenage Feminist and How to Lose Your Virginity, but today we'll focus on her most recent film, My So-Called Selfish Life, which tackles one of society's greatest taboos, a woman's decision not to become a mother. In this interview, Teresa and I talk about the growing number of people who identify as child-free, how the right to be child-free connects to the broader struggle for reproductive justice, whether you want children or not, and how Free to Be, You and Me turned her into a feminist. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that Fandom Made Me is an independently produced podcast and that you can support Fandom Forward and the podcast by visiting fandomforward.org slash donate or by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash fandomforward. Now, on to the show. Teresa Schechter, welcome to Fandom Made Me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here. This kind of podcast is right up my alley. So thanks for inviting me. Of course. Are you a pop culture buff? Yes. And and my films are all pop culture filled. I, I feel like pop culture is the thing that tells us who we're supposed to be, you know, for better or worse. And um, it's just really important to look at pop culture and understand what's they're telling us and also just to you know have fun now are you saying that because i told you about this podcast and its premise or is that something that you were thinking about beforehand no um it's something i've been thinking about for a long time and it kind of undergirds the way i tell my stories and my documentaries because there's a lot of I use a lot of pop culture. And again, I think it's because it's something we all relate to. We're swimming in pop culture all the time. And pop culture can be really, really powerful in sending us messages that we may or may not want to receive. But I respect its power, I guess I could say. So you are the creator slash director of several very important feminist documentaries, Can you tell me how and when you knew that you wanted to go down this career path and tell us about how you got there? Wow, it's such a circuitous route. I'm going to try to tell you this story without like making your audience's eyes roll into the back of their heads. (laughs) That's ideal. So I I went to art college. I had a whole career as an art director until my mid-30s. And then I was sort of starting to get that whatever quarter life thing, like, what am I doing with the rest of my life? And what do I want to be doing? And I decided I wanted to go to film school, because it was always an interest of mine. Uh, I went to film school part time while I was working full time uh, for the Chicago Tribune. And after a few years of making films in, in film school, I realized that I really was enjoying it. And it, it actually brought out all of my feminist tendencies. Because in the past, I hadn't sort of actively 
said I was a feminist, but then when I saw the kind of films I was making, like a woman trying to resist eating a piece of cake because she's on a diet, for example, um, called cake, things like that. So what happened was after a few years of part-time film school, I decided I wanted some real world experience and I applied for and got an internship at Tribeca Productions, which is Robert De Niro's production company in New York. Incredible. Did you work directly with De Niro himself? He's not in the office a lot because he's filming. He's all, He was also very kind of quiet. I don't want to say shy, but like he, he was very quiet and mellow. But sometimes I was an assistant to his producing partner, Jane Rosenthal, and he would come in and sort of stand at the door and say, Jane, is Jane here? Like that. <laughs> so we'd say, hey, Bob, go on, go on in. Yeah, so I, I have met him several times. Yeah, it was interesting. I interned there. And while I was interning, I decided that this is what I wanted. And I didn't want to go back to Chicago. And I didn't want to continue working for a newspaper. And I resigned over the phone from New York. And then Tribeca hired me full time. I worked for them for about a year doing assistant work. So, you know, answering phones and booking trips for Jane and things like that. And I thought, I went to film school. Why am I sitting here? I want to make some films. And I ended up going to Sundance as a volunteer. And I saw so many amazing documentaries at Sundance. It really just sort of changed everything I thought about filmmaking. Because when I was in film school, I had no interest in making documentaries. It was not on my radar at all. And um, once I saw how creative these films were at Sundance, I came back saying, this is actually what I want to do. And I developed my first film in a documentary workshop in New York City. And that became, I was a teenage feminist. My first film having the word feminist in the title (laughs) pretty much locked it in. I was approaching my 40th birthday and I was thinking about how I I was single. I didn't have any kids. I did not look like a Victoria's Secret model. You know, had I failed somehow, it was very much a very approaching 40. I haven't done the things I'm supposed to do as a woman. And I thought back to when the last time I felt pretty powerful about all of this was, and it was when I was a young teen. And so I tried to reconnect with that and see what it meant to be a feminist in the 21st century. So that's how it started. I think I sealed my fate by having feminist in the title, but I realized that that was really an important story for me to tell. So if that made me officially a feminist filmmaker, I think that was that was the moment. Right on. So doing the math in my head, I think that your first film came out on the cusp of the transition from film to digital. So I assume that if you were in film school in the late 90s, it was still very much, everything was still dictated by the standards of 20th century Hollywood and traditional funding and production guidelines. So I guess this is all to say, did you feel like you had some leverage in the age of digital as we were moving into more digital filmmaking? Uh, yes, absolutely. In in film school, we, we shot on 16 millimeter film and cut it by hand on these giant analog editing apparatuses. <laughs> I did take a digital editing course in school, which was great because it's much easier, honestly. Um, but uh, for our classwork, we were doing everything analog, no digital. When I was in this documentary workshop with a wonderful filmmaker named Mackie Alston, 
our assignment was to create a proposal for a film we wanted to make. There was no expectation we were going to make this film, but we were going through all of the steps to get ready to make it. We had to think through what it was going to be about, how we would fund it, all of it. And sometime in the middle of that year, uh, Mackie said to me, so you're you're making this film, right? And, that, and I'm like, no, I don't <laughs> I don't know how to make a documentary. He goes, no, no, you you have to make this film. Take my camera, go interview someone. He had a, a very beautiful digital camera and he handed it to me. And he said, just go interview someone, see how it goes. And I'd never shot on video in my life, which is sort of funny thinking back now because pretty much everything's on video. But I had to learn how to use a video camera because in film school, they only made us work with 16 millimeter. So that's kind of how it started. And, and then I bought my own camera. And of course, being a, an indie filmmaker, it is much less expensive shooting on video, editing on video. Um, it has its own challenges, but it allowed me and an entire generation of filmmakers to uh, have access to tools that would have been way too expensive if you were still doing film. As an indie filmmaker, are there a particular set of themes that guide your documentaries? Are they all pretty different or is there a unifying idea behind them? Well, when I made this first documentary, I was a teenage feminist. It just grew out of these questions I had about being a woman in the 21st century and all of these sort of expectations of how we were supposed to be and what was supposed to make us happy. And I was doing none of those things. And, and, and yet I felt like that was okay, but I wasn't actually getting any of that reinforcement like, from society. And I, I made that film because it was what I wanted to say. And the good thing about being an independent filmmaker, meaning I just, I make the film and then I try to, you know, distribute it or sell it to a distributor or whatever is I can kind of do whatever I want to do. So these films are topics I'm obsessed about. You have to be obsessed with a topic to work on it for five years or more, but I can do what I want. So no one's hiring me to make a film about dolphins, for example. And I just like, no, I'm obsessed with this idea. This is what I'm, this is what I'm doing. Once I had made that film, I realized that I had created a visual style for myself and a way of visual storytelling, um, which really wasn't that much like typical, kind of typical documentaries I would see on PBS or whatever. I, um, it grew from personal questions I had, I would narrate. I took the viewers on this sort of journey through these ideas to see what we could figure out together. And there were a lot of different people in the film lending their voices to the film. There was a lot of pop culture, history, politics, very much like sort of holding up like a prism to the, to the idea. And, um, and they were very casual. I would shoot on a very, with a very small crew, sometimes just me or sometimes me with the cinematographer. We were having really intimate conversations and I didn't want to freak people out with lots of other crew and lights. These were all things that I developed in that first film that I liked and I kept working in that way. And when I made the second film, I realized that I had a style <laughs> and I had an approach and I stuck with it. And I think like I've made three feature documentaries now, like full length documentaries. Um, I was a teenage feminist. 
which looked at what it meant to be a feminist in the 21st century when feminism was still a very dirty word. This was before Beyonce danced in front of a giant sign that said feminism on it in the mid 2000s, I think. My, my next film is called How to Lose Your Virginity, which was about the mythology and misogyny around female sexuality. And that was very much inspired by the abstinence until marriage uh, movement that was going on in the U.S. at the time and how they were taking our taxpayer money <laughs> from the government to basically lie to teenagers about sex. And I realized when I was working on that, that I wanted to take the same approach. And these two movies would sort of be a, a set, like they would be very complementary to each other. I would continue these explorations, you know, of these identities that are being sold to us in the ways we were supposed to live our lives and be happy. And, and, I, and I wanted to give people information on a lot of things that we took for granted that actually weren't really true, like the existence of the hymen, just, just to throw out <laughs> an example. And, you know, and help everyone understand what was really going on so they could make decisions for themselves and not do what other people felt they should do. Most recently, you completed a trilogy of feminist films with My So-Called Selfish Life, which is about the decision not to have children. So tell me more about this film and the child-free movement. Sure. I mean, I think this third film, My So-Called Selfish Life, once I had done those two films, I thought, well, I think I'm doing something here. And I'm going to, this third film was also going to be in that same vein. I did try to make How to Lose Your Virginity in a really different style. And I was just never happy with it. So this is the third in the trilogy. Yes, there might be a quadrology or whatever they're called <laughs> in my feature. But, you know, it's basically looking at this really taboo thing, which is choosing not to become a mother, because women are defined almost entirely by motherhood. So if you're saying, well, I don't I don't want to do that, you're really going against some very, very fundamental beliefs about how society should be organized and how women should value their time and contributions to the world. So that was very much of a piece with the other films I had made. I was taking another aspect of, let's say, womanhood and really trying to get below the surface and figure out, like, why? Why are we being told that our destiny is to become mothers? But a lot of us feel like it's not really not our destiny. I've known my whole life I didn't want children. I never actually decided. I never really thought that consciously about it. Like, I just didn't want children. It was just like, I don't want to be a doctor and I don't want to live in Spain and I don't want children, like that kind of thing. Now, imagine if you were a doctor living in Spain with children, that would really suck. <laughs> no, no shade on doctors living with children in Spain. As long as that's what they wanted to do, then, you know, more power to them. But it there, you know, there are things that you kind of know you're, you want to do and things you don't really want to do. And that was just one of those things. It wasn't very dramatic. It was just, I just, this isn't really something on my to-do list of life. But the more I started thinking about making this film, the more I realized what a fast-growing demographic this was, actually, of, of women choosing not to have children, and what a vocal demographic it was, too. There had been an explosion of websites and social media groups and books and so many conversations about something that I wouldn't have dreamed would have been available to me even 10 years prior to that. You have a really vocal audience, right? You hear a lot from audience members at screenings and on Instagram, and you receive letters from people about how your film changed their lives. Yeah, I mean, I think that the movement that 
you are central to is such an interesting one because it's still so taboo even today. It is still taboo even today. And it's like this regular, like you can pretty much count at least once a week, some dude is going to go on to Twitter and say, I don't know what these women without children are going to do when they turn 40. It's going to be a very lonely and boring life. This is like regularly posted on Twitter. Wasn't that Tucker Carlson's big thing? Like if he didn't know what to talk about, he would talk about women who don't have children. (laughs) It's, It's one of his things for sure. I mean, Chelsea Handler has been doing a whole series of videos that she posts on social media about being child free. And they're pretty badass videos. And Tucker Carlson kind of glommed onto them and just like almost had a nervous breakdown. So upset by the things she's saying and what a bitter, angry woman she is. And then a couple of other dudes came on and said things like that as well. It's so funny, like watching them, like, what even are you talking about? Like, you're just using some words that are not in any way related to reality. Chelsea Handler looks like a real badass and she seems very happy. And this is what drives them crazy because according to (laughs) the Bible, you know, women are supposed to marry men and be their, uh, you know, obedient servants. So what are you going to do with some woman who not only doesn't really want to get married, but definitely does not want to have children. That's just so threatening, (laughs) threatening to the patriarchy. It kind of upends all the work that they're doing. So that's that one side of that conversation, which is constant. I started developing my audience, very technical term, but growing the community when I first started working on the film, which was in like 2016. And I started a Facebook page first and then some Instagram accounts. And the Facebook page grew to like 11,000 followers, which is kind of crazy. Since 2016, I've been hearing from people who were child-free or didn't quite know, but were trying to work through it. And people were really happy to know that I was making this film. I did it when I first started making the film, I did a survey, uh, which I expected like 50 people to answer. Basically tell me about your experiences of not having children. I posted it on Facebook once and I got in a week, I got about 1900 responses, which was (laughs) overwhelming. But 1,900 people took the time to fill out a survey and send it to me in one week. And the first question on the survey was, why did you answer this survey? And overwhelmingly, it was just like, we really need to talk about this. I want to talk about this. Can we please talk about this? And that kind of convinced me that my film, I should make this film (laughs) because there would be an audience for it. But all along, I've been getting notes from people. And when the film premiered digitally, we had like thousands of people watch it in like 33 countries. People tuned in for two weeks to, to watch the film online. People were making Instagram stories about the film and they were sending me emails about like one person watched it with her mother and it was a really great bonding experience for them to watch it together. And somebody else's family finally understood what, you know, they were all about and just things like that. It's really moving. I think when you're making a film, it takes a long time and you're spending most of your time in a little room with your editor you know, try to make something that makes sense. And then hearing from all of these people out there that have watched the film and gotten something from the film. And it's really moving. Well, luckily for you, I think the community of people talking about being child-free or childless by choice is only going to keep growing in size and, and loudness. 
But also, luckily for us, Tucker Carlson is now gainfully unemployed. Gainfully for us. Yeah, it's true. But, you know, you whack one mole, another one pops up. So I don't know what's going to happen with him. But yes, it's good for him to take a little break and think about his life. The other thing that happened was um, our film, you, there's a lot of ways to tell the story of, of people's people choosing not to have children and not everything around that. And we decided to do it through the lens of reproductive justice, that it was a reproductive justice issue, having the choice to not have children. And when we were releasing the film on this like global digital premiere, it was right around when Roe v. Wade, the, the leaked judgment came out. And that was right when we were releasing the film and doing a bunch of press for the film. And it was great. I don't want to say like Roe v. Wade being overturned was like, like a great thing. It was a terrible thing. But one thing that came out of it was people really wanted to talk about it. And they were very easily making the connection between reproductive justice issues and the choice to be child free and sometimes the struggle to be child free. And I think that issue also continues to magnify and looking at it through the child free lens as a, an issue of bodily autonomy, you know, reproductive freedom. These are things everybody is dealing with right now. It, it really universalizes this struggle. You know, I like to say that if you can't control your reproductive life, you can't control the rest of your life. Yeah, I can't tell you how many people I know who have had trouble getting their tubes tied without a spouse's permission or simply because they're quote unquote too young to make that decision and they're like 30 years old. I mean, I believe there was someone in your film who was maybe around that age who said, you know, if you're an adult, why do you need someone else's permission to make that choice for yourself or something along those lines? And I, I found it really compelling and and very terrifying. Oh, yeah. You're yeah, you're referring to Lauren, who is in our film and through the film, she's trying to get elective procedure to get her tubes tied. She wanted more than that, but that's the minimum. It's, it's really, really hard to find a doctor who is willing to do sterilization surgery for you if you're, you know, under 40 <laughs> and haven't had any kids. And when we started shooting with Lauren, she was 19. She was a college Oh, student. wow. Yeah, she was 19 years old, but she'd already got her stuff together. She had this whole dossier about like why she wants to do it, all the research she had already done on it studies like scientific studies it was all in a binder and yeah she was constantly being turned down and you know we follow her path on this trying to get this done and since Roe v. Wade was overturned the number of requests for things like tubal ligations getting your tubes tied or something called a bilateral salpingectomy which is um, having your fallopian tubes removed completely which by the way helps prevent ovarian cancer and also, surprisingly, the number of men that have been asking for vasectomies, because vasectomies just aren't that popular in America. And that number really grew. You won't be surprised to hear that it's easier for a guy to get a vasectomy than a woman to get her tubes tied. Of course. And this is not just an issue that affects younger people. This is something that has been a part of the culture for generations. I'm guessing there have always been people who identified as child-free or childless by choice. 
Certainly one of the most compelling stories to me was of a child-free activist who went on 60 Minutes in the 1970s with her husband and her in-laws, and they explained, you know, that they weren't going to have children. And because she was a teacher, she was fired from her job because people assumed, well, she doesn't want children, so she must hate them. So it's interesting to me how long women have been fighting for this choice. Well, I'm going to tell you, they've been fighting since they could get pregnant. (laughs) I mean, since women have, have gotten pregnant, it's forever, they've been trying to control it. Not necessarily not having children, but trying to control their fertility, trying to control when and how many. There are really ancient devices that were used for contraception. We talk about that kind of thing in the film also. Yeah, I think for people who can become pregnant, women, non-binary people, trans men, I think that this concern will only escalate as reproductive rights decline. I want to just thank you for what you just said, because I usually start these interviews by saying that, you know, not every woman has a uterus and not everyone with a uterus is a woman. I use the term woman in a sort of sociological sense as an oppressed class, <laughs> historically oppressed class. So I, I say women when I'm talking about these sociological issues, but if we're talking about somebody getting a sterilization, it really could be anyone. So going back to pop culture, when I asked you to be on this podcast, you told me that an album that influenced your work when you were a little girl was Free to Be You and Me. Can you explain for younger listeners who don't know what Free to Be You and Me is, what it is? Yes. The full title is Marlo Thomas and Friends, colon, Free to Be, dot, dot, dot. You and me. Uh, It started as an album in 1972. Marlo Thomas was really dismayed at the kind of stories children had available to them and how full of gender stereotypes these stories were. And she thought there must be something better we can talk to our kids about than just telling girls that they're princesses, little Mary handsome prince, etc. So she created this album of songs and skits. She has she had a lot of a lot of famous friends. And she brought them all together to do this album. And then the album, a couple of years later, turned into a TV special, also called Free to Be You and Me. I actually saw the TV special first, and then I begged my mother to buy me the album. It was a huge part of the culture for kids growing up in the 70s. When Free to Be You and Me came out, I was 12, which was kind of a perfect age to be thinking about all this stuff. The whole thing really questions traditional gender stereotypes and really promotes independence and being able to decide what you want to do with your life. And it was really radical, (laughs) needless to say, in 1974. And it really affected me deeply when I saw that. It was the thing I was looking for to make sense of my life, really. Watching Free to Be You and Me made my life make more sense. The way I was feeling about myself, about my social groups, about the pop culture I was ingesting for I don't know how many hours a day. When I made I Was a Teenage Feminist, the film practically opens with me walking down the street carrying the album in my hand and talking about how that made me a feminist, you know, at the age of 12. That idea of being able to decide, having the tools to decide that what you want to be and having the freedom to even consider all the things that you can be, that's really informed all of my work since since that fateful day in 1974 when when I saw Free to Be You and Me. 
I did not grow up with Free to Be You and Me, although my husband did, and he was born in the early 90s, just as I was. So it's clear that this special and the album had intergenerational appeal. It was something that parents of your generation passed down to their children. But I watched it on YouTube for the first time, and I was really struck by how progressive a lot of the songs were. And I actually had to wonder if there would be outrage from Tucker Carlson and Fox News and all of these, you know, alt-right Twitter accounts about this program if if it was created today. But going back to the celebrity roster, you know, we had Marlo Thomas, obviously, Alan Alda, Cecily Tyson, Michael Jackson, Diana Ross, and Harry Belafonte, actually, who, as of this recording, died today. So just weird timing there. But you know, these are all icons. So what did it mean for you as a 12 year old to hear and see your icons supporting themes of of gender equality and progressive living? I would say as a tender young 12 year old, I probably didn't have that language. Like I didn't, I wasn't analytical enough to like go, oh, these famous celebrities are talking about these important things. It was more like, wow, yeah, this makes so much sense. Look, there's Michael Jackson. You know, so um, it was it was exciting to see people that I knew that were really famous as part of this. Actually, that was really exciting. Yeah. Seeing Michael Jackson do his duet with uh, Roberta Flack. They do like a little they're both little. They're so young and they're they're doing a duet about like, I don't care if you're pretty or tall or whatever. You don't have to change at all. They're talking about the future. Alan Alda, I was a big MASH fan, so I couldn't believe Alan Alda's all over it. I think he directed a lot of the segments also. I used to work with Alan Alda, by the way, which was really cool. So Yeah. yeah. Is he nice? He's so nice. He's so nice. I went to his holiday party a few years ago. Um, he's a very funny guy. And I was I don't tend to get starstruck, but um, what can I say? I love Hawkeye. MASH is just wonderful. That's great. Yeah, it was things like that. And she really pulled together an incredible bunch of people, not just in front of the camera, but all of these songs were written by famous people. One of the best known segments of Free to Be You and Me is a song called William's Doll. And it's basically about a little boy who wants a doll and everyone's teasing him and his dad doesn't know what to do. So he buys him all this sports equipment you know, to like, oh, he'll get into sports. He won't want the doll anymore. And then eventually his grandmother steps in and says, oh, just get him, get him a doll. It will be great when he's a father one day, he'll know how to care for his child, which is super pronatalist. And we can talk about that later. But yeah, I mean, that's what I wanted to get into. So when I was watching the special, I noticed that there were a number of songs, not just to do with children and their outlook on the world, but the expectation of parenting and themes of parenting itself. Let's talk about that. Let's unpack that. Do you think that if Free to Be You and Me was remade today, it would have a different tone? It's hard to imagine. I mean, there have been conversations about doing an updated version. Again, the original Free to Be You and Me, there's all kinds of great stuff. But, you know, there aren't any gay people in it, for example, right? This is 1974. There are no no people who are gay or no, you know, gay couples. I don't know when Heather Has Two Mommies came out, which was kind of a groundbreaking book for kids about lesbian parents. But there isn't any of that. There are assumptions, like in William's Doll, the assumption is that, like, this will be good for when he's a father. But also, the song really goes out of its way to show that William is really good at sports, and he enjoys 
enjoys all the sports, um, but he also wants a doll. It's still very like a little uncomfortable. Although like I know a lot, a lot of gay men have told me what that song meant to them. Like it meant everything to them when they watched it as kids. To do it today, you know, you would want to have, of course, a lot more LGBTQ conversations about those kinds of families. I would hope it was going to be less pronatalist and it was and less um, nuclear family-ish, which it also is. Obviously, there is nothing about trans people in it. And there's one sequence with these baby puppets. They're very <laughs> sort of famous, these puppet babies in the, in the original show, voiced by Marlo Thomas and Mel Brooks, talking to each other in the nursery in the hospital. It's really funny. And there's one point where they're talking and they're like, am I a boy or a girl? I don't know. I'm not sure. And Mel Brooks is like, well, I have very dainty feet. I think I'm a girl. And Marlo Thomas is like, yeah, I think I'm a boy. And that goes on for a while. And I'm thinking, wow, this is so cool. I'd forgotten that they're, you know, just deciding what they are. But then they get their diapers changed and they see their genitals and they're like, oh, I guess I'm the girl and you're the boy. And, and that's like, Hmm. We could handle that differently now, I think. Honestly, I think that all baby girls should have the voice of Mel Brooks. That just tracks for me. I want to live in that world. I know. Yeah. It's really it's really funny, but I never really thought about it in terms of, you know, talking about trans lives and kids. And, you know, so I'm like, oh, they look at their genitals and they decide that's who they are. <laughs> it's pretty reductive. But I mean, I'm not saying that that's, that's not how, like, most people start. You know, they have certain body parts and, and they're treated like boys and act like boys and whatever. And then, you know, that doesn't start starts feeling very wrong. So that was kind of interesting. The other thing for today, and this is something I felt when I watched it way back when, like Rosie Greer this is another famous thing. Rosie Greer is a football player, like at the time, like a really big deal football player sings a song called It's All Right to Cry. This is beautiful, like a really beautiful song. And it's Rosie Greer, who's like built like a giant football player. And he's singing like, it's okay to cry. It's really aimed at boys, that it's okay to cry. And it again, it's another one. It's funny, like straight guys have told me that that's the song they related to. And gay guys like were really into William's doll. I don't know how universal that is. I have a small sample, but the thing is that it's still not a right to cry, but it's not a right to cry now if you're a woman in power. You know, like women in power who cry, that becomes the headline where we have so many pictures of guys crying for whatever reason and it makes them look, you know, human or whatever. It's just weird. There's just a lot of weirdness around some of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I love crying. I think it's great. You got to get it out. You got to be tender. Yeah. And you know what? People will say that it's, it's still not a right for guys to cry. So with for boys to cry. So some of the stuff, like, it's not enough for Rosie Gr you know, to sing it. Like, there has to be actual change, and that takes a lot of time and work. So it's a lovely song, and I think it impacted kids. But at the same time, there's more to be done on things like yeah. this. So what is the song from this album that changed your life and made you who you are? You know, people have been, like, waiting to hear this. Drum roll! <laughs> <laughs> so it was not a song, but a story called Atalanta, the story of Atalanta. It's actually based on a Greek myth, but it was rewritten for the purposes of this show. And Atalanta, this is also in I Was Exchange Feminist, like within the first 10 minutes, I talk about the story of Atalanta. Atalanta is this princess. Her father, the king, is trying to get her married off. She's kind of like, nah, I don't really want to. I want to use my telescope and explore, you know, cities and things. And he's like, okay, whatever. I'm having a road race 
a running race and I'm going to invite all the young men to do a, a running race and whoever wins that race gets to marry you. And she's like, okay, but I'm also going to run in that race. And if I win the race, I don't have to marry anyone if I don't want to. So he's like, <laughs> sure. Okay. And basically the day of the race arrives, there's all these men and her, and she's really ahead of the pack for most of the race. And then this other guy sort of catches up with her, young John, and they end up crossing the finish line together. This is where it starts feeling like a little dated, like the narration is, and they cross the finish line as equals. (laughs) Like, okay. But what happens is the king says, oh, well, young John, you tied so you can marry my daughter. And young John says, well, I would never dream of marrying your daughter if she didn't want to marry me. And Adelange was like smiling and happy. And so instead they become friends. And then young John goes across the seas to discover new lands and and Atalanta goes off on horseback to explore great cities. And I actually wrote this ending down because this is the thing that changed my life. So the ending narration is, but now Atalanta is still off in the world, visiting towns and cities. And John is still sailing the seas. Perhaps someday they'll be married and perhaps they will not. In any case, it is certain they are both living happily ever after. That's beautiful. And just so full of possibilities. And I just can't imagine hearing that kind of story when I was younger. Even in in the 90s and 2000s, we just never really had children's stories like that. Um, And this is many years after Free to Be You and Me came out, or I guess at least I never heard that story. But that's that's wonderful. I get choked up talking about it still after so many decades. I'm still choked up when I talk about that ending. I, I don't know if I can explain how profound it was to hear a story of a smart young woman who did not have to marry the prince to live happily ever after. And like the world was open to her, to whatever she wanted to do. That's what made me a feminist, Sabrina. <laughs> it, was, it was that sentence. Incredible. But it, did. it was Again, it spoke to something so deep inside me that I couldn't fully understand. And when I saw Atalanta, I was like, oh, that's it. That's the thing. I haven't understood, but now I do. And now you're off on your own adventure, doing wonderful things, making amazing films with a lovely group of friends and family around you. Is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners today? Two very important things. One is I did actually get married, but I didn't do it till I was 47. After I had ridden my horse through lots of towns and cities, I I met the person that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. You have a wonderful Prince Charming. I met him. He's great. I do. He's great. He's really great. And we were both 47 when we got married and we'd never been married before, even in like a, any kind of like very serious live in whatever, none of that. So that's one thing I held out. It was worth the wait. But, but the other thing is, and this is the big news for people who are in New York City. My so-called selfish life that we've been discussing is having its New York City premiere. So live premiere in a real theater. We've been waiting a year to do this because of COVID and it's going to be May 16th. And if you're from New York, you know, Anthology Film Archives in the East Village and we're going to have it there in their beautiful renovated theater for folks who've been there before. Um, yeah. So May 16th, it's the live New York City premiere. We're going to have a bunch of people from the film there also and a panel and then a little meet and greet. It's going to be great. And after that, we're going to have global streaming, I think for the summer. I'm not sure of the dates right now, but people will be able to stream it globally starting maybe sometime in June. 
I'm sorry that I don't have the exact things, but I will encourage everybody to get on our mailing list, which is called the first to know list, which literally means you'll be the first to, to know what's coming up and where the film can be seen because it's not available widely yet. Well, I know I will be at the New York City premiere. So if you would like to meet Teresa or myself, you can get your tickets online. I put a link in the show notes and a link to Teresa's newsletter and the website where you can learn more about her films. Teresa Schechter, thank you for joining us on Fandom Made Me. Thank you. It was such a pleasure having the opportunity to talk about Great View and Me. Fandom Made Me is an independent production of Fandom Forward, executive produced by Brian Carton and hosted and produced by me, Sabrina Carton. Special thanks to Claire Tai and Miriam Banakaram, and of course, our Patreon subscribers. To follow us and learn more about supporting fan activism, visit fandomforward.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.